Sometimes going slow is the key to growing fast. People think it's better to have a firm opinion than no opinion at all. That's what you got to parse out. So when someone says to you, market doesn't need that, nobody's going to use that. Do they really have the right perspective to be able to say that? This is a show for startups hosted by experienced VCs that cuts to the chase to give you concise, relevant, and actionable advice to achieve sustainable growth. This is Go Slow to Grow Fast, a Mercury podcast. Hi, welcome to the Go Slow to Grow Fast podcast brought to you by Mercury. I'm your host, Heath Butler, and today we have my friend and partner, Adrian Fortino, Managing Director at Mercury out of the Midwest office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Same, same. Super excited. Today, we're going to explore the good, bad, and ugly of the zero to one journey. Yeah. You've been through that personally. (laughs) Uh, We'll go through that and see if we can give some words of wisdom today. Do my best. Good deal. Well, look, before we dive into that, you've got a very interesting, inspiring story. (laughs) You've been there as a founder. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your pathway to venture? Sure, man. Interesting is a nice way to put it. So I started as a mechanical engineer out of Michigan. I graduated in 2000. And when you do... Oh, go blue. Thank you. Go blue. Yeah, we got a team. So I graduated in 2000. And at that point, when you graduate 2000, mechanical engineer kind of had one job, right? And it's like mm-hmm. automotive, especially there. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll be going automotive engineer. And I was a combustion and emissions development engineer for a while and then sort of did manage some of the projects and teams at this uh, company called Ricardo, which is an engineering consulting firm. Great way to cut your teeth, great way to learn how to be a professional and travel the world, live in the UK, just like unbelievably good experience, right? But at some point, in that time of being employee of a publicly traded company, I was like, this isn't the end Not state. Not going to cut it. Right. This isn't the end state. I got to go and figure out what's next. And I had this kind of vibe of entrepreneurship. My grandfather was his own boss. My dad was his own boss. So that was always there with me and kind of like, so like I think at some point I got to do my own thing. So as an engineer, being very practical, Mm -hmm. I said, well, clearly I'm going to go to school to learn entrepreneurship. And so I went to the MBA program at Michigan again. Okay. And in that program, started to kind of understand a bunch of things like, what does it mean to start a company? That's when I learned what venture capital was, right? Right. It's a mysterious thing out there in the ether. And went and met a lot of people, kind of built some network. And at some point through that process started to meet some of the entrepreneurs and VCs in Ann Arbor. And and this is like 2007. Sort of like, okay, this might be an interesting path. I ended up deciding while I was in the MBA program in early 2008, it was like April 2008. So it was still sunny. It's great. You know, (laughs) what great recession. I say, okay, I'm going to jump, jump in two feet, hands everywhere, just right into startups. And I came in as the first employee of this startup in Ann Arbor. Founder is still a very good friend of mine in town, Doug Neal from Elab Ventures. And we went at it. And best part of the company was a name, Boom Dash. Boom Dash. Boom Dash. Oh, wow. So what did Boom Dash do? This was at the very early stages of search engine marketing, SEM, AdWords. And so we built this very 
slick little application that allowed very small businesses, insurance agents, lawyers, any sort of like service-based SMB, the ability to engage and build a presence on AdWords on SEM. Yeah, that's very early on. Very early on. And our big kind of aha was that we were going to do it through channel partnerships. And what were the channel partnerships? Yellow page directories. Right. Wow. And again, like at that time, they still had a business. Google hadn't overtaken them. We're like, actually, there was good basis for it. Right. Right. They had a client base and they didn't have anything digital. So we go in and you're trying to enable the incumbent. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Just didn't realize the incumbent was in the death spiral already at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we ended up building a little bit of a team and client base through the, the few channels. So when I started to go down to New Orleans nope. and hang out there, we had some good publishers down there. But at some point, we just figured out that there was just not enough hay to be made. They were still trying to figure out how they could have a sustainable business. We couldn't make enough money for them because of the AdWords costs that we were doing on top of that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it just ended up kind of crashing, right? Mm-hmm. And so we shut it down. We shut it down in March 2009. By the way, when I quit my job at Ricardo and I took this job, this opportunity at Boomdash, mm-hmm. I took an 85% pay cut and I got two points of equity, right? And so took a lot of risk with that, right? So I, I get there March 2009. So now we're in the Great Recession. Right. Doug and I shut the company down. And this is, I think you know this, but God's honest. Same week we shut the company down in March, my wife tells me she's pregnant with our first kid. Oh, wow. Right. Congratulations. Yeah. So it's like- You hit the lottery. Gulp. (laughs) So I'm like, I really liked it. I know it didn't work, but I liked it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to give myself the rest of the year, 2009, to see if I can build something else, do something else, build something, whatever it might be. Started to do some consulting, leveraging my network from Cardo, kind of pay some of the bills, not all of them. And then over time, through that network, through my MBA program and just the network I was building, I started to meet up with some other technologists in town through some other VCs there, hooked up with a master's student at the university who was working on, it's called Magic Bus. Think of it as like estimated time of arrival app for your bus, your university bus. Got it but built this into my first company, which is called Shepherd IS. And it was the first cloud-based fleet management solution for university buses, private taxi fleets, vans, all those kind of smaller operation fleets and built it into a nice little company. So this is 2010 at this point. Yeah, it was actually, we officially spun it out, started the company in 2009. Okay. And in 2009, and then started to ramp it up in Mm -hmm. 2010. Built up a nice little company, had customers all over the Great Lakes and East Coast, had a built a team of four or five people. And it was like, cool, we did it. Like, this is great. It was great. And then it kind of, through a lot of exploration, more customer discovery, started to figure out maybe the TAM on this might not be huge. Maybe the total adjustable market might not be massive. I think the best one was where we were piloting it with the Ann Arbor Transit Authority, which would be the largest fleet we would have ever had. Right. Something crazy, like 80, 80 to 100 buses and, and okay. vehicles. Would have been a company-making deal. Piloting there. They're happy to have us there. Like, great. Mm-hmm. We go through this month-and-a-half pilot. We show all kinds of great data mm-hmm. about better estimated time of arrivals, more accuracy, mm-hmm. increased ridership. Everything was great. Right. 
get to the end of it. I'm like, and here is your contract to sign up with us for three years. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? We were just giving you like a sandbox. Like, we're not going to buy anything from you. <laughs> this is my first <laughs> lesson in enterprise selling, right? right. It's like, I'll use it. I don't really want to buy I mean, it. Yeah, it's like, I'm like, well, and again, this is like customer discovery 101. Right. I didn't have an appreciation of their risk profile. I didn't ask questions. I didn't know. Right. And I was like, what? And so that helped to spur us thinking about what else could be out there. Mm -hmm. And so we started to think about what else could we do with this technology? We started to really kind of branch out in networks that were, weren't just in the Midwest and began to get to know some folks outside and brainstorm with what else could be out there, right? And through that process, hooked up with our future co-founder for Sidecar. And so came together with him, my CTO co-founder at Shepard, it spun out effectively a new company. At the time, it was just, hey, do something really crazy and we're going to replace your car with your iPhone, right. right? Which is kind of kind of like batshit crazy, but turns out might right. have been an opportunity there, right? right? right. There right. was. And a little early. A little yeah. early. And so we built that, raised some money on the basis of just that. It was replace your car with your iPhone. We're actually going to be the center point of transportation in an urban setting, right? And so we would be your connection for taxi, train, bus, everything would go through that as a single app. Turns out that the APIs didn't exist. The ability to make those integrations didn't exist. And so over- And then the API concept was a little early. Yeah, now, yeah. Right? Also also early. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up focusing in on the rideshare kind of vertical and really built the first true instant rideshare community and offering in Sidecar. And where was this base? We had moved it to California moved by that California. point. Yeah. So we moved to San Francisco right when we raised that first seed round. At that point, it was very difficult to build a company, a consumer-facing company, I should say, in the Midwest. That and then, would be real, real hard. And then what happened to Sidecar? Yeah, I mean, built it into a nice company. We had a number of great wins, geographic wins, raised some money on it, and ended up not being quite the outcome that everybody wanted, but certainly was a trailblazer for sure. What would you say is the biggest lesson learned that you took from all of those experiences into your venture experience? Into the venture experience? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many. The top ones that come to mind mm -hmm. are being maniacally focused on the kind of value proposition and evaluating if it's really there or not. Because of course, when you start a company and you're at ideation stage, you're like, oh, I believe this is going to be, I believe this is going to be value. I believe that someone would find value in replacing your hey, car with your, your iPhone. You're also, <laughs> for sure. Right. And so try to be maniacal and unemotional as much as you can be, which is virtually impossible right. to like, is this real? Mm -hmm. Is this real? Be your own best skeptic. Yeah. Is this real? And will people pay for it. Right. Because <laughs> in the end, right, yeah, you need to make some money right, right, for something right, right, to be right. a value. Yeah. That's right? a little important. Yeah. And so that's what it comes. I mean, there's lots of, there's capital efficiency, there's team building, there's all kinds of things that are critically, critically important. But I've certainly spent time before starting my companies, like wasting time with things that just didn't have. Right. Legs. No, absolutely. That's really good. So you also successfully navigated that zero to one journey with yeah. Sidecar while it wasn't the outcome you wanted, 
you got through it and, and sold the, the other company. ones too. Yeah. yeah. And look, I'd argue and with Shepard. I mean, Shepard, we had product market fit, Shepard IS. We had mm-hmm. multiple customers across the country. So there's no question. We just decided to kind of move to a different sort of area, a bit of a pivot because we thought the TAM was so compressed. Right. 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 And just like, eh, I don't know if this is going to only going to be a whatever two to, I don't know, $4 million a year company profitable. But if that's our max, then is that something we want to spend our time on? Right. So when you think about the zero to one journey, how do you define it? Yeah. Look, I think it's going from ideation to activation. You're at ideation, you're thinking, is this something that seems like it's something there? It seems like the market needs it. It seems like there's a customer base, but it's unproven. And so it's going through the paces of proving that there is real unique value for your customer profile. There is actually an exchange of currency. Like there is some form of, I'm going to pay you for this because I'm going to find value in this. There's some sustainability to that. And there's something repeatable in the process of that customer Mm -hmm, adopting mm -hmm. it, which in large part is product market fit. And so that's how I define it. Certainly how I defined it. I would define it in my own companies that we started. That's really good. How do you take one no and learn from it? How do you decide how much basis, how much weight it should have? Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of iteration to understanding the perspective of the people saying no. So I can't tell you how many investors turn me down, including Mercury, turn me down for sidecar, right? <laughs> and some of them had great reasons and very thoughtful, logical reasons. Mm-hmm. And then many other ones were like baseless because, you know, people think like it's better to have a firm opinion than no opinion at all. Right. That's what you got to parse out. Mm-hmm. So when someone cares, some says to you, market doesn't need that. Nobody's going to use that. Mm -hmm. Do they really have the right perspective to be able to Mm -hmm. say that? Mm -hmm. And in many cases, it's no. And you say, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Go right past it. And others are like, no, no, no. That's actually really good feedback Mm -hmm. because you can't waste your time. You know, I teach this class at Michigan and it's basically intro to venture capital to engineers. And it's mm-hmm. primarily the audience. These are kids that want to start a company. Right. They want to like understand I'm what venture just, is. Yep. What I say to them over and over again, guys, there is nothing more valuable than your time. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It's not the cash in your pocket. It's your time. Right. And so getting to understanding and really appreciating and loving the no's because right. you'll be able to learn from the no's. Right. right. Those are huge opportunities if you take advantage That's, of them. Massive. And don't yeah. take it personally. Right. They're not calling your baby ugly. Right. Right. Well, they are, but like, yeah. whatever. Right. But you want to know why. <laughs> yeah. You want to dig into the details. Do they have the basis? What mm-hmm. I just found is that I couldn't tell you what the percentage is, but I'd say that, especially at the early stages of that zero to one, mm-hmm. 75% of the no's are baseless. Mm-hmm. They don't have the experience. They don't have the know-how. They don't have the perspective to hey, say definitively it's not going to work. Right. 25% do. So- A lot of times founders confuse two concepts. They recognize that we want to see a big TAM and they sometimes take that to mean that they need to shoot anything that moves all the time and forever. Right. Tell us a little bit about whether your experiences as a founder or as an investor, how do you help them understand that the big TAM doesn't mean go after a big market? 
and, no. and that you, you've got to get narrow to this ICP concept you're talking about. Look, it's really hard to navigate that because most investors will tell founders, like, I'm not going to invest in you if he doesn't have a few billion dollars of TAM. The challenge is, it's not useless, but it's like, you can't do anything with that when you're trying right. to build your first right. 250K of revenue, right. 500K of revenue. All that matters is you go. And so I think the big thing is like, the be all end all success is not venture capital in our world. It isn't, right? Some companies need it and definitely should take it. Some companies shouldn't. Right. But again, I teach, I tell us my class all the time, like, hey, build the company that makes the most sense for the market you're tackling. And that's from a perspective of like, don't raise money if you don't have to. We didn't raise any money for Shepard because we didn't need to because we had revenue right out of the gate. Yep. And we could convince the employees to take pittance of salaries because we gave them equity. Right. And so it's focus, right? It is focus. Mm -hmm. And is there something, enough of them in that serviceable, addressable market that you can build something repeatable? And then over time, perhaps you can build something extensible outside of that that creates a TAM that's even larger. But I don't know. I just, big fan of focus at these early stages from the zero to one at least. No, absolutely. And so you talk about fundraising and how important it is to determine if you really need it or not. What role do you think fundraising plays in that zero to one strategy? I think it's a distraction. Yeah. yeah tell us a, more. I think it's a total distraction for the majority of companies. Clearly, there are some companies that you have to raise money mm -hmm. to build something biotech because there's a revenue coming in regardless, right? There are some like hardware heavy companies that are very difficult to build without investment. Mm -hmm. But in the world I come from, at least from the founder side, software, certainly the world that we come from on the mm -hmm. Mercury side, software, I'd make the argument that if it's a compelling enough vision and customer opportunity, you should be able to recruit people who can build. And in that stage, you need sellers, you need builders. So as long as you can build people or create people who can sell, maybe it's you, maybe it's your partners, and build, then focus on that, build, sell, and you have to oversell. You have to sell vaporware. Right, right. Right. And it's not like- But you're looking for early adopters. You're looking for early adopters. And you're right. open with it. You're not right. saying like, oh, I'm going to sell you something. Not, no, I'm going to say right. like, hey, I'm going to build this and right. this feature set with you in mind. Right. And if you guys can commit, even if you can just commit that you will buy it once we have a certain feature set, then that's really helpful to give me, my company, or my team confidence to be able to build toward that. Yeah, it's um, funny. I teach the how to start a startup class at the ION here in Houston, and I'm preaching something very similar, which is, listen, you should be able to get to your MVP with like less than 10 grand. For sure. Because you need builders, you need people, yes. you need people to help you. And at first thing you've got to do is create some type of social capital yeah. and then find some human capital. Yeah. If you can get those two things rolling, then you might need or be able to find financial capital, right? Yeah. That's right. So on your path to building and not raising money kind of seems like you need people. You so kind of turn you our do. attention to talent and yeah. culture. So culture is often talked about as being extremely important. What's your thoughts? At what point during the zero to one journey should you be thinking about culture as you approach trying to get these people to come join you and, and get the best talent? I think culture and talent come into play at the exact same time. Because if you're not going to focus on the culture, then how are you going to build a team that you want right. or attract the people that you want? 
So they go hand in hand. Look, I said it earlier. If you can't attract a really talented team on the opportunity that's in your head or maybe on a napkin or maybe even like an MVP-ish, then oftentimes it says something about your ability to lead, sell. So look, you've been through a recession as a founder. Yep. We're in an interesting time right now, not quite a recession, but the economy has shed some jobs, especially in tech and software. What do you tell a founder who's right in the middle of this zero to one journey, trying to figure it out, trying to navigate it in this current environment? What's the most important thing they need to be thinking about? I kind of go back to a few things that we've touched on. So the first is focus on building something that will create unique value for a given market segment. It doesn't mean there's not competition, just means it's a unique value right. for it, right? Two, can you build a team to go after that vision? And again, a usually lightly or maybe not compensated team, at least in cash, certainly in equity, and then capital efficiency. Now is a time like we haven't seen for many, many years on capital efficiency. I've never heard so many venture capitalists, not private equity, venture right. capitalists talk about profits right. and break even. Like yeah. that was like, what is that? Man, it's all the rage now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's it. And then circling back to like, certainly as you're building that team, as you're going after that vision, going after that unique value, building a culture that's sustainable, that has clarity, that's balanced that's inclusive of everybody that would be on that road with you. That's really good, especially the element of focus and and getting down to zero burn, right? I was at Venture Atlanta recently and talked to some investors. One guy told me he funded a company, but he told them he would only do the wire transfer if they can commit to zero burn. He said the entrepreneur was quite confused, (laughs) but that's the time we live in now. So Adrian, as we wrap up and you think about all of your experiences, both on the founder side and on the investor side, leave the audience with some of the pitfalls to avoid, some of the things you see founders often, whether they get in their own head mm-hmm. or they just uh, aren't focusing enough. Yeah. What are some of the pitfalls you think they often get into and need to avoid to sort of make sure that the company sticks around and is able to withstand a downturn in the economic environment like we're seeing now. Yeah. Let's go back to that art of understanding no. I talked a lot about the kind of like, hey, don't listen to the no's. But again, there's something you got to listen to. Right. So what I see a lot and I've always seen, because it's almost endemic to our nature as founders, is you know, we talk about kind of them having the blinders on mm-hmm. when they're building. Mm-hmm. Because you're so focused, you're so maniacally focused about building something. And so your head's down, you're there, you're down for three months, six months, nine months, who knows? And all the while, the competition is continuing to build and iterate and change too. Right. And because we're so emotionally attached to what we're building and you almost get these, as I call them, blinders, right? And you can't see out there if you don't force yourself. Right. You have to force yourself all the time to see what's out there. Look for it. Look for competition. See what's in front of you. What's the new competition doing? What's the Mm -hmm. old competition doing? How are they changing? How do you anticipate where they're going to go? Competition is incredibly important. Again, it's not bad. It's not good. It's not bad. It's like, it's just there, but you got to understand it. There's opportunities to learn from that as well. 100%. Making sure that your co-founder and early employee set is kind of well-equipped 
to be able to go through the early stages of both capital efficient building, meaning that like, hey, one of my companies that we're both like the same people. We're like both mechanical engineers with MBAs that couldn't code. Right. And so like, <laughs> so we had to go and pay for the development of this software, that this loyalty software that we built. And hindsight, like probably would have been made more sense for us to find somebody who could code as a co-founder. And maybe right. one of us maybe take a little bit step back or do something. I don't know, but right. making sure you have the members. right, yeah, complimentary yeah. team members, mm-hmm. again, that care, that have the same vision, are willing to fight out those things. And then just uber focus on that unique value, understanding, mm-hmm. talking to customers all the time, finding out everything about their life, their experience, like everything that you possibly can being excited about talking to customers. Yeah. It's not a job. Exactly. If you're building a company, yeah. like it better not feel like an arduous task right. to talk to your customers. You better be so excited about getting some time with them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not in the right job. Yeah, the customer discovery, it's everything, it's in, everything. That, <laughs> in that zero to one journey. Adrian, this has been great. Thanks for the time. Thanks, bud. I think you dropped some great insights and uh, we'll I hope see. everyone enjoyed it. Thank you. I appreciate the time. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care, bud.